Welcome, gardeners. This is Louisa Pringle Cameron with her podcast, The Charleston Gardener. And today I'm going to give you the second half of the history of gardening in Charleston. It's a brief history, but I want to tell you what we've already talked about. Last week, we talked about the Englishmen who came to Charlestown and settled in 1670 up on the Ashley River and then came to the peninsula. And there were very few gardens on the peninsula. They were mostly little farms outside the walled city and a few garden plats and some kitchen gardens in the city. Well, then things began to develop, and elaborate and elegant gardens were designed for some of the gorgeous 18th century mansions that were being built on the peninsula. We talked about the fact that the 1700s were a time of great discovery in the plant world, and Charleston was one of the centers of of this intense interest in plants and gardening. Andre Michaud introduced the Camellia japonica, the crepe myrtle, the highly fragrant tea olive, the ginkgo tree, the mimosa tree, and the tea plant to our area. Now we're going to go to the 19th century. Charleston was a wealthy city for much of the 18th and 19th centuries, as evidenced by the magnificent buildings that still remain. City gardens, however, were necessarily restricted in size. A significant property needed to include the dependency buildings and yards supporting the main dwelling with housing for servants and slaves, kitchens, shelter for animals, privies, carriage houses, stables, and laundries. There is much archaeological evidence that household refuse from large establishments frequently raised the soil level over the years by many feet. So the pretty little courtyards and lovely landscaped areas you see today in the historic district were not nearly so tranquil, sweetly scented, or floriferous. There were, however, several public pleasure gardens that came and went over the years, including the now-famous Battery at the tip of the peninsula, where pirates used to be hanged, but where in later years there were concerts under the bandstand. There was a small grove of orange trees in a park off of Broad Street, where one could stroll and take in the scents and sights. A very small garden further uptown offered tents for shade from the sun as well as ice cream for sale. Several scholars have attributed the first gardening calendar for Charleston's climate to Robert Squibb, an English plantsman who arrived here in 1780 and had a nursery on the Upper Peninsula. But Martha Logan published her pamphlet, A Gardener's Calendar, in 1752, revising it over several years. For the month of May, there are two entries. The one dated 1756 states, This month is chiefly for weeding and watering, as nothing sown or planted does well. By 1798, she adds that you must shade anything planted and that you may sow endive or cabbage for the fall. Both Mrs. Logan and Robert Squibb were mainly concerned with kitchen gardens. 150 years later, 
the Garden Club of Charleston published a guide that also included a monthly calendar. For the month of May 1990, there is now no mention of vegetables, but it is recommended to replace pansies, snaps, and other fading bloomers with begonias, petunias, portulacas, vinca, verbena, and zinnias. Also included are recommendations for pruning, fertilizing, and spraying. Hollyhocks may be sown for bloom the following spring, the booklet states. The vague sentence, continue to sow flower seeds for summer bloom, is the last entry under planting for May. A bit of research into seeds tolerant of our late summer heat and humidity suggests that amaranths, cleome, cosmos, nicotiana, and poppies are possibilities. Today's nurserymen have made such amazing strides in plant breeding that there are numerous plants now that can take the heat and thrive. Built about 1800, the Pineapple Gates House on Legree Street is one of the finest examples of what is known as a single house, as it is one room wide. But this brick mansion is several stories high and the rooms are large. Handsome porches face the southern breeze and the house and its dependency buildings extend way back from the street. The extensive garden has been carefully and professionally restored to its nearly original state. Archaeological findings by Martha Zierden of the Charleston Museum uncovered the 1818 design. There were four separate historic gardens behind the beautiful gates and fence, a spring and summer flower garden, a fruit garden, and a vegetable garden, all planted in sequence from the street front to the rear of the property. Based on old photographs, a folly was built to match one that led through the middle of the front garden into the next. Further research and findings from the dig enabled the restoration landscape architects to use many of the plants that had been in the original garden. Joel Poinsett, the son of successful Charlestonians, was a well-educated diplomat appointed as the first American ambassador to Mexico in 1825. Described as a devoted botanist, he sent plants back to America, including a particularly exotic one to a friend who was the current owner of the previously mentioned Bartram Nursery near Philadelphia. The brilliant red specimen was later introduced at the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, and in 1834, the plants were marketed in Europe as poinsettias. The fascination with new plants continued through the 1800s, up until about the time of the Civil War. In the year 1800, a French horticulturist named Philippe Noisette arrived in Charleston. He started a farm south of Charleston where he experimented with roses. He gave his neighbor, John Champney, a gift of Old Blush, a china rose, which Champney crossed with Rosa Moscata, a rose discovered in Himalaya in 1540. The resulting cross, Champney's pink cluster, eventually resulted in Blush Noisette. A new group of roses, the Noisettes, were developed and became a sensation here and in France. By 1825, Rose breeders were experimenting with tea noisettes. Around the middle of the 19th century, exploration for new and exotic plants had moved toward the West, 
although it always continued in wild and unexplored places. The Civil War, the occupation of Charleston by Union soldiers, and the earthquake of 1886 were devastating for the city. Always moving forward, however, Charleston became the host for the South Carolina Interstate and West Indian Exposition, which opened with great fanfare on December 1, 1901, on 250 acres lent to the city. The land was at the northwestern aspect of the peninsula and was eventually purchased by the city of Charleston. President Theodore Roosevelt arrived by steamboat to visit the exposition, and Thomas Edison made a film clip of his arrival. Chiefly concerned with agriculture, the expo was a financial failure, but a large part of the property became a city park named Hampton Park for the Civil War hero Wade Hampton. John Olmsted, son of Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park, was consulted and the Agricultural Society of South Carolina started plantings on the property as early as 1903. In 1918, the city offered the state 176 acres adjacent to the park and along the Ashley River for a new campus for the Citadel, our state military college, where this institution remains today. The Cosmos, Coxcombs, Echinacea, Gilliardia, Gomfrina, and roses growing at Hampton Park today were all grown in colonial Williamsburg and in early Charleston Gardens. Our parks have flourished as our mayors have made tremendous efforts to provide more and more green space in the city, and there is a devoted core of volunteers who help maintain these public areas. Peace and prosperity after the World Wars and the Great Depression ushered in a new wave of interest in establishing pleasure gardens at home. Famous landscape architects such as the Olmsted brothers and the firm of Innocenti and Wabel were consulted not only for subdivisions like the Crescent and other large developments such as nearby Yeamans Hall, but also for private gardens in Charleston. Luttrell Briggs, one of our most well-known and beloved landscape architects, came to Charleston in the 1940s and remained with his family until his death in 1974. He is responsible for hundreds of designs, from gates to benches to plant consultations to numerous entire gardens. His book, Charleston Gardens, published in 1951, is a collector's item. The late James Cothran, also a landscaped architect, wrote a book on Briggs's legacy. Quite a few of Mr. Briggs' original gardens have been restored and maintained and are sometimes on tour for the historic Charleston Foundation's annual festival of houses and gardens. Luttrell Briggs had a great talent for using small trees, shrubs, and plants that grow well in our climate in the designs and patterns he used with each house and the space allotted for its garden. He felt that the garden should be a part of the house and he kept the landscape formal and in scale for the historic homes. Today, due to the historic Charleston Foundation and the Preservation Society's annual tours, visitors can also see gardens designed by a new cast of landscape architects and talented amateurs. Even if there are no tours available, there are many gardens visible from the street. 
Trad Street and Queen Street have house after house with the most fanciful and beautiful window boxes, and the parks are full of interesting plants. One Charlestonian wanted the perennial gardens at Hampton Park to have a fine collection of crinum lilies, so he donated many of these old-fashioned bulbs. There is also a collection of noisette roses at the park. There are many graveyards and cemeteries to visit. Magnolia Cemetery, dedicated in 1850, is the city's oldest public cemetery. Its story is beautifully told in Ted Phillips' illustrated book, City of the Silent, the Charlestonians of Magnolia Cemetery. The old burial grounds are a tranquil garden of fascinating monuments surrounded by oaks, magnolias, hollies, palmettos, sago palms, cedars, and yuccas. In spring, there are azaleas and roses and narcissus, followed by more roses and lilies in summer, then camellias and sasanquas in the fall. A picturesque wooden bridge crosses a small lake that draws egrets and other birds and wildlife. A recent visitor wrote that she loved the Spanish moss blowing in the wind. Even though the cemetery was a campsite for troops on both sides of the Civil War for over three years, and Union troops felled an oak grove for firewood that had been a centerpiece of the landscape design, the grounds still retain vestiges of a grand plan and are open daily to the public. The Unitarian Churchyard on Archdale Street is a lovely place to visit and is usually open. After Hurricane Hugo in 1989, Hugh and Mary Palmer Dargan, both landscape architects, compiled a survey and grounds analysis of the churchyard. Part of the analysis is a list of all of the plant material, complete with the approximate date of each tree, shrub, or plant's discovery or introduction. There were 17 species of trees and 15 shrubs. Of the shrubs, the Dargans note that all are introduced specimens with broad distribution and long association within this region. There are old roses and colorful weeds such as morning glories, four o'clocks, the orange turk's cap, and spiderwort. Ferns and ground covers vie with vines and bulbs for space. The enormous crinum lilies are spectacular when their trumpet-like flowers bloom in the summer and fall. The church and its graveyard are located at the western end of Gateway Walk, a pathway through the center of the peninsula that is maintained by the Garden Club of Charleston. The history of Charleston Gardens will continue to be a fascinating journey. There are always talented gardeners, landscape architects, and designers who, along with our wonderful nurserymen, will come up with new ideas and plant combinations for the unusual and often unique spaces in a city that has kept its charm for over 300 years. The plant of the week is salvia. The only salvias I remember from childhood were approximately 12 inches tall, straight up and down plants with red pod-like blossoms. They also came in purple and white. People used to plant them in soldier rows in the front of the border. Then some sort of explosion happened in the salvia world and suddenly there were tall, short, brilliant blue, sky blue, orange, peach, red, yellow, and white salvias and specialty nurseries were popping up everywhere. 
Everyone was enchanted with salvias, which are in the mint family and are easy to grow. Frank Cabot, the famous gardener and author, visited Charleston several times and visited our garden more than once. His recommendation for our south-facing bed, the largest one in the garden, was to plant salvias, which we did. Eventually, crepe myrtle roots and fig vine took over, and other than Argentine skies, all the salvias disappeared. We realized recently, when we completely reworked the bed, that most of them are, like crinums and oleanders, just too large for our garden. Salvia is still at the back of the bed, but it is not as showy as we'd like, so it may get moved to make room for the hollyhocks I would like to try next year. My husband and I just visited a friend's garden that had plenty of room and quite a few fancy and heavily blooming salvias that were on display. I thoroughly enjoyed seeing them and will tell you soon about that friend's garden. Thank you again for listening. And I hope you will tune in to next week's episode of The Charleston Gardener. Thanks, as always, goes to my friend and producer, Daniel Patrick, whose own podcast is Mandolins and Beer. And, as Benjamin Disraeli once remarked, how fair is a garden amid the trials and passions of existence. (laughs) ¶¶